is one of the things about people say, well, which, how many movies did he write? What did he get credit for? Aside from counting particular movies, I would just think these genres that we've talked about. I mean, if you just say screwball, gangster, and newspaper movies, like that's pretty good. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. He invented 30s movies by inventing 30s genres. And that's not even half of Ben Heck's story. In the second of two podcasts devoted to classic screenwriters, I talked to Adina Hoffman, author of Ben Hecht, Fighting Words, Moving Pictures. Plus, I talked to Nitrate Diva Nora Fiore about the 10th annual TCM Film Festival, held earlier in April. So listen up, subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and be sure to leave us a rating or a review at iTunes. The last guy who didn't was Archie Leach, and you know what happened to him. Before we get started, Be Natural, a new documentary about the pioneering woman filmmaker Alice Guy Blachet, is starting to open in theaters this week. I spoke to its maker, Pamela B. Green, last fall when Be Natural was playing the festival circuit. So if you haven't heard that interview, go to your favorite podcast app and look for episode 30, release date October 4th, and check it out. The TCM Film Festival held its 10th annual festival in Los Angeles, April 11th through 14th. And for the third year running, Nitrate Diva Nora Fiore is our correspondent on the scene. Festival looked, looked great, 10th anniversary. And the 25th anniversary of TCM as a channel, too. That, too, which we hope continues for a long time, he said slightly nervously. Oh, yeah, with this... Uh... With this AT&T thing, it's, it's scary. Definitely uh, a lot of people on, uh, on, on alert about, about what might happen, but it was, it was really moving. And, you know, especially the little, before a number of screenings, they did this little celebration of Ted Turner featurette that was really short and sweet, but just what an incredible life it was. I, you know, it illuminated a, a number of facets of his life that I really didn't realize. Um, and so that was sweet to get a little bit more of a spotlight on him too. So he's finally recognized as a good guy and not Mr. Colorization? I guess so. I, I think it'll take a while for everyone to forget, uh, the, as, as Orson Welles said, the, the goddamn Crayolas. Um, but, <laughs> but I think, I think uh, it's cycled back around enough that you know, his, his, uh, you know, he's brought enough movies to enough people that he's forgiven. I remember uh, the first TCM Film Festival I ever went to, I saw a Q&A with Robert Osborne for the press, and he was talking about just the incredible vision that it took for someone at that point to say, yeah, these movies are valuable. You know, a lot of people just didn't didn't see them that way, didn't realize that that library was going to be useful. Um, but mercifully, fortunately, uh, you know, he, he did, which was great. And I he was 
very briefly there on the red carpet. I was not able to, you know, he wasn't stopping to take interviews or anything with the, with the, you know, the kind of gauntlet there, but I did get to see him and he, he looked really, you know, he was beaming with, with the, the joy of all that. Well, good, good. Yeah, you know, one thing I was thinking about that just proves the enthusiasm of the TCM fan base. This has been at festivals before, but the buttons, everybody's making buttons. You know, there's just this kind of, you know, craft idea of owning a little piece of it yourself by making your own thing to hand out to other people. That's that's really kind of charming. Yeah, it, it really has become a thing you know it's really become something that a lot of people do when they're going to the festival i mean tcm i believe got the ball rolling by making buttons that were the official buttons that had you know you would kind of collect them it was a little bit of a social media scavenger hunt the first time i went where you did certain things and you got certain buttons and it was kind of an incentive but it was something that the fans definitely really grasped onto and and did i created uh, a kevin well i didn't uh, a friend of mine made it uh, kate gabriel who who's just a wonderful maker and does delightful classic movie and other themed things but she she made some kevin brownlow fan club buttons um which i bought and i i handed those out and in the end there there were none left they were very, they were pretty popular which was great and, uh, you know, friends of mine just it's wonderful to see what people zero in on as the focus for the buttons. Um, you know, there were there were Santo buttons for Santo versus the evil brain. <laughs> there, was, there was a George Sanders button because they were showing Samson and Delilah with George Sanders. There was a, a memorial button in honor of um, a very lovely lady who was a member of TCM Party and unfortunately uh, recently passed passed away. And. So, you know, it's just, they're just such a wonderful way to share your enthusiasm. And like you said, to have, to have something to hold on to afterwards. And it's great because I find that I do recycle my buttons that, you know, I'll kind of go through, oh, what's showing this year? What buttons from previous years should I bring with me as, as a remembrance of, of a past year? Are they showing a Harold Lloyd button? Do I get my Harold Lloyd button out from, you know, 2014 or something like that? So, you know, you really do kind of have this rotating wardrobe of buttons. That's, that's fun to, to draw on a little collection. One thing they did last year was give the first Robert Osborne Award. Uh, I don't think anybody would argue with the choice, Martin Scorsese, and I don't think anybody would argue with the second choice this year, which was Kevin Brownlow. And uh, I saw that you went to the screening of the version that Brownlow and Carl Davis put together, either for Channel 4 or Thames Silence, I don't remember which, of A Woman of Affairs. Yes, that was wonderful. And I really loved the the TCM video tribute that they showed before the screening. It was a really moving encapsulation of his life work. And, you know, what a reminder of, of the generous giving person he is, how he enjoyed saving and showing others films more than making his own. It was that was very well received, the, the little tribute video to him. And the screening itself was also a perfect tribute to his work, not only in that he restored and preserved silent films, but also how much he did to resurrect the reputation, you know, to make people recognize silent cinema as one of the great arts of all time. I mean, there we were sitting in a packed house and, you know, the Egyptian theater is a huge house filled with people so excited to see this film from 1928. And uh, it was just a, a great tribute to all he's done to keep silent film alive. Well, you know, there's a concept that's kind of going around right now that, uh, the flip side of film preservation has to be audience preservation, keeping people interested in these films uh, and not just saving them and locking them away. So, I mean, Brownlow is a perfect example of that. In any any opportunity he's had, it's been to bring silent film in its full power to as big an audience as possible. 
Yeah, just today I saw that my my friend Ben Modell, who is of course one of the great silent film accompanists of our time, he did a post about the this acceptance speech that Brownlow gave for the Robert Osborne Award and the way in which Brownlow really took to task again, uh, like he did in his uh, Academy Award acceptance speech the way in which copyright is such a huge barrier to people seeing these films and to preserving that audience. I mean, he really did. He, he asked, you know, where's the Hollywood documentary? Why can't we release it? Well, it's because of all the copyright issues. It's because of how much it would cost to get licensed for all of those clips that make it such a masterpiece and make it such a wonderful assemblage of the beauty of silent film. And, and that's really sad. And he has every right to be angry about that. When I met Brownlow in, in, I think it was 2015, he told me a horror story about a film that he had helped save and had discovered. And, you know, he called the studio to say, you know, can, can I show this? What do I have to pay to show this? And, you know, they previously had no record of it, but the moment they knew it exists, oh, $2,000 a minute. Um, and it's just really gobsmacking all the barriers that have been put in, in his way to try to get these films out. It's such a contrast between what, a a giving, generous soul he is and all the time and energy he's put into saving this and, and all the barriers that have been put in his way. So tell me other things that you saw this year. Um, I saw you saw a, a, a nitrate print of the Dolly Sisters, which I have to admit I've never seen. I'm not entirely sure. I guess I kind of know what it is. It's a Betty Grable musical. <laughs> Yeah, the Dolly Sisters was a really interesting double feature sort of with A Woman of Affairs. So I saw those two back to back. You know, they're both films about glamorous women who are trying to live by their own code of honor while dealing with very demanding, judgmental men. I, I, I actually joked on Twitter that the Dolly Sisters should have been called Emotional Blackmail, the musical. <laughs> um, and without giving too much away, both those films, The Dolly Sisters and A Woman of Affairs, involve a, a significant car accident that leads to the resolution. But it was really beautiful to see on, on Nitrate. The Technicolor really popped. I, I know when Martin Scorsese was there a few years ago, he pointed out that there's something almost three-dimensional about about nitrate prints that that you just won't get with with other prints. Uh, the one moment that really popped out to me was when John Payne sends Betty Grable this bouquet of red roses, and they get it in their dressing room. Uh, the two sisters and these beautiful pinkish red roses against their the white of their lingerie. I mean, seeing that on DVD, it was it was a very beautiful contrast. But to see it on nitrate with the the velvetiness of those roses, um, it just it was like you could reach to the screen and touch the petals. That was very striking. Really, the the textures of the Dolly Sisters showed up very beautifully. All those glittery barrettes and silky and satiny costumes really did show up beautifully on that print. And you, you really get a sense of those sensual, almost tactile pleasures through images that drew people to the movie theaters religiously week after week. Why why movies were such an important part of people's lives to go and get that kind of stimulation. And that, that was really the art of the studio system, making even really a so-so movie feel satisfying through the way it looks and just the the spectacle of, of all that. Um, and and some, another thing I noted seeing the Dolly Sisters on Nitrate after having seen it on DVD was how much more vibrant the colors were, of course. Like, for instance, there's this one famous musical sequence where all of the different components of a lady's makeup box are personified. And there's one that's Rosie Rouge, and she's the personification of blush, and she appears in a compact mirror. Well, on the DVD, the background in the mirror is almost black, but on nitrate, it was closer to teal, which was uh, quite huh. an 
eyeful against the pink of Rosie's hair and face. So that, you know, that was just one thing I noticed thinking, wow, I, I do not remember it looking that good. And sure enough, it, it really didn't. And I, I really thought Betty Grable gave a, gave a sensitive, understated performance, uh, Unfortunately for Betty, she was recurrently upstaged by some pretty whimsical hairstyles. Uh, they they looked like you know hair by Dr. Seuss or something. Um, <laughs> which is a real shame, and you know it's it, it's it's doubly a shame because I think the the conflicts that she expresses would have felt very real and familiar to women in 1945 who might have been feeling ambivalent and you know torn about their relationships. And I think that you really her her uh, her portrayal of a woman torn between her ambitions as a performer and her loyalty to her sister on the one hand and her love for John. On pain on the other was was done very uh, very beautifully and subtly. I th- thought she gave a very nice performance, so it was good to see that on a big screen. I'm not sure I was particularly aware of that beforehand. Yeah. Um, just generally, the nitrate screenings are such a highlight at TCM Film Festival. It was good to see uh, the Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, and as we learned that that print came actually from Shirley Temple, who donated that print to um, the Academy, I believe. And that made that screening just that much more special. That is one of the things that is always special to me about nitrate prints is that you have to getting the provenance of the print and thinking about whose eyeballs uh, you are connected to <laughs> the one remove of the print. Um, and, you know, Bachelor and Bobby Socks, so that's not a movie I think of as being especially visually stunning as having a lot to, you know, to really make your eyes pop. But it's great to see it on nitrate because you realize that there really is, you know, there's Cary Grant's armor shining. And that was really gorgeous on the nitrate. You Shirley Temple sweater, like the, the fuzzy halo on it was just that much more noticeable. And of course, you know, Cary Grant's hair, you know, you can see every strand in his huge luxuriant mane of hair, which is great. And it's, it's such a great audience picture, you know, the accumulation of laughs, especially in the end. And, you know, I think that that's something really special about the TCM audience is that they're so enthusiastic and they have such good reactions. I mean, I'm pretty sure I saw that exact print at Nitrate Show a couple of years ago of the Bash and the Bobby Soxer. And I remember people being appreciative. I remember some laughter, but I do not remember it being the riot it was at TCM Film Festival. And people were practically rolling in the aisles, just, just such great reactions that bolster up your own reactions. You get the synergy of reactions. It's just really wonderful. So I was thinking actually a little bit about the different ambiances of the film festivals I go to and, and how TCM Film Festival has this really enthusiastic ambiance. And I'd say Nitrate Show has a little bit more of a academic, at times almost solemn ambiance, a little bit more studious as a vibe. And, you know, Capital Fest is kind of joyfully geeky, uh, where, you know, it's so full of surprises. And in many cases, even the most diehard collectors and film watchers haven't seen a lot of the film. So we really don't know when we see it, if it's going to be a dud or if it's going to be the greatest thing we've ever seen. So it's kind of has this element of surprise and suspense to it. TCM Film Festival, it's funny because I, I have a, a Capital Fest friend who always jokes to me, you go to TCM Film Festival, you, you go and see Casablanca on the big screen every year. And I always go, no, that's not what it's about. It's films or lesser known films and even when you are seeing a film at TCM Film Festival that you've seen dozens of times like I've seen The Bachelor and the Bobby Sox or dozens of times since I was a little girl and but it was never like that you know I noticed jokes I noticed you know reactions I noticed facial expressions and you know little noises and background things that I never noticed before and I'm not sure I would have noticed if I didn't have that audience that is just so appreciative and so excited and so overjoyed to share it. I mean, the TCM audience is almost like a cross between 
Oh boy, like group therapy and <laughs> and cheering on a home team from yeah. the bleachers. Like, you know, it, it has that element of like, we're all here together. We don't have to feel weird anymore, which, you know, when we're scattered throughout the country, you know, throughout the year, you can feel a little odd being the only one sometimes in your orbit who loves this stuff. It definitely is one of the few places I've been to where people react to movies the way the majority of the country reacts to sports and not just <laughs> reacts to movies, reacts to very old movies. You know, we clapping is such a big thing at TCM Film Festival. And it's kind of a big thing at Capitol Fest. We'll, we'll clap for, you know, little obscure character actors and bits and stuff like that. But I feel like it's very pronounced at TCM Film Festival. And it's, you know, Franklin Pangborn. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> right. it, it really reinforces that sense of it being a communal fan experience. Um, it's, it's really fun. But the nitrate screenings are always a big highlight for me. Uh, Roadhouse was also beautiful. And I think that movie showcases so much of of what looks good on nitrate. You know, there are certain things that always stand out to me when I'm when I'm looking at a, a black and white nitrate print. And a lot of times it's sparkly dresses it's ripples on water. The catch light in people's eyes is just that much more vivid and um, poignant in many cases, and especially when it's Ida Lupino. Another thing that stands out to me on nitrate is glassware, and so much of Roadhouse is set at a bar. And uh, let's face it, nobody could handle a tumbler like Ida Lupino, so the gleam, the gleam on that glassware was very enticing and, and noirish. You know, there's all those beautiful moments that invite contemplation of her just taking her drink and sizing everybody up. And I, I know I, I didn't understand this until a couple of years ago when I took a workshop at the George Eastman house where there were, there were these two gentlemen who explained how nitrate film was made. And I didn't understand until then that it's not just the emulsion that makes nitrate special, but it's also so much of it is the base. And they, they showed us the nitrate base versus safety film base. And it was really impressive how much clearer the nitrate base was versus the you know the safety film they showed us which was almost murky looking and it, to me that that suggests why certain things do really pop on nitrate and they are in many cases things that are clear and that are luminous because you know the base is just allowing that much more light through so that stuff can really sparkle so that Ida's drink can really cast that that gleaming reflection at you. I saw that you went to the uh, screening of The Bad Seed with Patty McCormick in attendance. Yes, that was a lot of fun. I actually not only attended that screening, I got to talk to her on the red carpet, which was a lot of fun. She's just a lovely lady, and she has such upbeat stories of having been involved with that production. I know a lot of child stars don't have such upbeat stories, but it sounds like she just absolutely had a ball. She she loved the fact that her reputation as this little terror from the film, she she was a very professional little girl, but her reputation as being the evil Rhoda preceded her, and she just loved that people were scared of her. You know, gave her the sense of of being so powerful. She she told some wonderful stories about how she prayed to get the part. It sounds like she got a really great training in theater before she went into film. You know, she did the 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 play on Broadway over and over and over again. That really honed her skills to the point where when she got to Hollywood to do it on film, she was very confident about it. And Mervyn Leroy was very much a fan of the way the play had been. And so he really kept it at that level of emotional height. He didn't try to tone it down for film. He thought, you know, let's keep everybody at this consistently high strung level and, and really sell it, which I think the movie does. I know many people consider that movie pretty campy. I, I think it's still, I think it, I think the stylization works for me personally. And I do think it's, it's genuinely scary. I, I like it a lot. 
So that was good. And that interview by the, by the pool side was done with Eddie Muller, who I think does really wonderful interviews. Probably the interview highlight of my festival was Eddie Muller's interview with Jacqueline Bissett before a screening of day for night. That was, oh boy. I mean, I was in the second row of that one, but I think at any distance, it would be impossible not to be starstruck by Jacqueline Bissett. She's, she's so animated and so charming and so very beautiful. I was really disappointed last year when she did not make it for the intro to bullet. Um, apparently she had some, some terrible accident where with her hand where she needed stitches. Um, it was not just a diva thing. She, yeah. she really hurt herself. She damaged her hand, which is, which is terrible, but I'm so grateful that she was able to be there this year. She had wonderful stories of working with Truffaut and Jean-Pierre Leo. She had a very funny story about how she got the job of the part in day for night. She was apparently staying at some seedy little left bank hotel when she got a call on the one hotel phone, you know, at the lobby, she had to come down and get the call. And she, you know, and the person on the other end said, hello, this is uh, Francois Truffaut's agent. And she said, this is, you're joking. This isn't Francois Truffaut's agent. She, you know, how did you find me here? How did you know I was here? Well, somehow they had, and they offered her that part. And she, she really had wanted to work with him for a while. So that was just serendipity. She had some funny stories about, how day for night's reflexivity, you know, with the film and the film became very confusing. You know, when they, when Truffaut said cut, because he plays the director in the film, nobody was ever sure. Okay. Is he saying cut to the actual crew? Or is he saying yeah. cut the actor crew? Who is he? Is it, is it us? Is it us? Who is it? <laughs> um, Eddie Muller asked Jacqueline Bissett also about some of the people more associated with old Hollywood that she worked with. Uh, for instance, she had some good stories about working with George Cukor and how in spite of being a man who directed these very elegant very sensitive films he was he was quite a tough guy in real life you know he he would be you know walking around new york and nobody dared mess with him <laughs> and and also about how he was weirdly shy about directing sex scenes for that he would kind of just go off and be like okay you guys know what to do i'll i'll be back uh, which I was very surprising but i i guess that was uh, you know he just he didn't want to be there making everybody feel uncomfortable and um, she had some funny stories about John Houston, where apparently one point she was concerned about close-ups and wasn't sure if there'd be close-ups in a scene. And he said, does she want to direct too? And she did this great John Houston impression better than, than I can do for sure. But she was just enchanting. And I'm so glad I attended that interview that she did with Eddie Muller. Another one that you talked about that I thought was a really interesting combination of presenter and film was that Bill Hader presented uh, Mad Love. Yes, yes. He he was great. He got up there and he said, wow, you guys are really the hardcore geeks, huh? You know, you're here at, at nine in the morning to see Mad Love. And he had a great story about how he discovered Mad Love off of TCM. He said that he's one of those people who tends to fall asleep every night to TCM. But the night he saw Mad Love, he did not fall asleep. He stayed up watching it and then stayed up all night researching it, going, what the heck is this? What, what is this movie? Um, so that was that was really fun. And he did he did a Peter Lorre impression, which I you know, when I saw he was on the roster for that movie, I'm thinking he better do a Peter Lorre impression. And he, he, sh he certainly did. And that was great. And there was another special guest in the house for Mad Love. And I saw her roll up um, and enter the theater. And that was Cora Sue Collins, the child star who appears in the film as the, the paralyzed little girl that Dr. Gogol cures, which, you know, what a great Hollywood connection, right? To have have a little girl who was in this film in 1935 show up now, and and she just celebrated her 92nd birthday. She looks she looks amazing, and she has such wonderful stories. She was actually 
poolside at the Roosevelt last year for kind of a panel. And afterwards you could go up and ask her questions. And I asked her about Mad Love. I, I, she looks so terrified in that film. I always worried that maybe she had been manipulated in kind of a, a nasty way to, to make that reaction so real. Maybe they told her her dog died or something like that. So I, I definitely wanted to ask her about that. And she said, no, that was, that was all acting. She, she was just really able to summon that emotion as a little kid, which is quite impressive. And she told me that Peter Lorre was an absolute dear. He was one of the sweetest, nicest people you would ever care to meet. So I'm glad that she has fond memories of making that film. And uh, I love the Bill Hader intro. That was that was a little bit of a strange uh, match, I, you know, for for movies. But I I thought that he did a nice job. Although, and as I tweeted, I feel like it's a little bit of a missed opportunity that he did not do a little bit of a bit as his perennial SNL character Stefan, who uh, describes all these wild nightclub scenes in New York. But I was thinking that it would have been fun if Bill Hader introduced Mad Love in character as Stefan and say, this movie has everything. Decapitated heads, reattached hands, steampunk Peter Lorre, a guillotine, a wax figure, and a cockatoo. Links to Nora Fiore's blog and Twitter account, both called Nitrate Diva, and to the TCM Film Festival site, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. This is looking to be a really long episode, so I'm not going to do anything cute. I'm just going to say it quick. Leave us a rating and review at iTunes because it helps other people discover it too, and we really appreciate it. Thanks! Ladies and gentlemen, announcing the Battle of the Century. Carol Lombard versus Frederick March in Nothing Sacred. Yeah, yeah. Let me sock you just once. Just once on the jaw, and I don't care what happens. What caused this peaceful little country girl to declare war on the handsome slicker from New York? Nothing Sacred tells you why, but solves no other war problems. Nothing Sacred solves no peace problems. Nothing Sacred solves no labor problems. Nothing Sacred solves absolutely nothing but your entertainment problems. And here's the cast of... Ben Hecht wrote more movies than just about anybody in old Hollywood, from A Star is Born to Gunga Din to Notorious. But that's only part of his story. He was a daily newspaper man and a foreign correspondent and a contributor to highbrow literary journals, and a radical campaigner for Israel's founding and defense. And he lived a breathless life of controversy and love affairs. Adina Hoffman is a movie reviewer and a writer on Jewish topics, and she's taught at Wesleyan and Yale. For her, Heck's life is a quintessential American Jewish life, and that's why she proposed him for a series of books on Jewish lives from Yale University Press. The result is her new book, Ben Hecht Fighting Words, Moving Pictures, published in February. Obviously, I mostly interview people who have written movie books, per se, and I guess this one is really focused first uh, because it's in a series called Jewish Lives on him as a uh, as a representative of a particular kind of Jewish identity, which we'll get into. But uh, first off, I mean, I'll just ask you, why did you choose Ben Hecht as opposed to a million other prominent uh, right. Jewish people you could have written about? 
Yeah, well, I mean, and it is it's interesting. It's in a series, as you said, Jewish Lives, and most of the people in the series are people like Moses and Einstein and Freud and quite right. famous um, Jews. And I had to actually make a real case for Ben Hecht when I, I mean, my editor wanted me to write a book for the series, but um, she was not, I think, initially convinced that Ben Hecht was a great candidate, but I thought he would be perfect. I mean, there's so much to say. You know, Hecht is obviously known best if he's known at all, and there's a way in which he's been forgotten, but he's known best as a, as a screenwriter, um, you know, one of the great screenwriters at all time, et cetera. You know, Godard said he's responsible for 80% of what, um, you know, what's made in you know, what Hollywood movies are made of today, something like that. Um, and so, of course, it was through the movies that I first got to him. I worked as a film critic throughout the 90s, and I was very aware of him as this this film figure. But when I began to learn more about him and to read his, his memoir, Child of the Century, and some of his other memoiristic work, I realized that the movies were really just a piece of it. I mean, Hecht, before we even get to the Jewish stuff, I mean, he was also, you know, this kind of old-time Chicago reporter, obviously, and that's um, an experience that he and Charles MacArthur turned into the front page. And um, um, so he was that. He was also a novelist, and he saw himself um, first and foremost for many years, primarily as a novelist, as a, you know, a real artist and man of letters. And he was very involved with the Chicago Renaissance and close to everyone from, you know, um, Carl Sandburg to Sherwood Anderson and, and um, various others, you know, in that world. Um, and, you know, then he was a playwright with MacArthur, a Broadway kind of, you know, hit writing playwright and somebody who had a major effect on the American theater too. I mean, Tennessee Williams says that MacArthur and Hecht basically, um, you know, they took the corsets off um, the American theater and made it possible for him, for for um, Tennessee Williams, to write his own work. Um, and then on top of it, there's the Jewish thing that came to Hecht later in life. I mean, he was always Jewish, obviously, but he became much more conscious of his Jewishness around the time of the Holocaust. And I was, first of all, fascinated by the multiplicity of all of those things going on at once in him and also his own inability sometimes to recognize what his own gifts were because he had total contempt for the movies, which I'm sure we can talk about, um, <laughs> or he claimed to have contempt. It's actually complicated. I think he also deep down kind of loved them, but he claimed contempt for Hollywood and for the work that he was doing and that he was getting praised for and getting paid so highly for. Um, and I thought that was just a fascinating sort of fact that he was all those things at once that he didn't understand his own talent. Um, and then the Jewish thing, I mean, you know, I myself, first of all, wear a lot of hats. So I was sort of drawn to um, the, the fact that he did all those things. But the Jewish thing was a little more complicated because I'm also, you know, very involved with Jewish things. And I've written extensively about the Middle East and I spend a lot of my time living in the Middle East and writing about it. Um, and Hecht, on the one hand, was in very involved as am I, but we also kind of part ways there. His sense of what it means to be Jewish and also um, his whole relationship to the politics of the Middle East are pretty much the direct the direct opposite of my own. <laughs> um, I mean, on, on the political spectrum, he's very far to the right in terms of Palestine, Israel, and I guess I'm pretty far to the left. And I actually set myself a sort of, I thought it would be a really interesting challenge um, as a writer who's primarily written about people with whom I identify politically to try to write about someone who I'm actually have a pretty big argument with. Um, but I, whom I also like, I love his work and I have total, I mean, you know, I, I, I could write in praise of him, but this is more complicated than that. I thought that kind of the opposition would actually make for a kind of fruitful, um, uh, you know, biographical experience for me at least. Um, so that's sort of where it came out of. And I was able, I think, to make a case to my editor that, that he was worthy because the Jewish stuff does become so 
central. I mean, the rest of it, a lot of people want to know about the movies and, and the rest of it, but the, the fact that first he's radicalized by the Holocaust and turned into this kind of um, spokesman for this small group of um, Palestinian Jewish activists who came to the States in the early 40s and who were interested first in raising money for a Jewish army to fight alongside the Allies and then eventually, you know, presumably evict the British from Palestine. Um, but then later on that morphed into a very kind of outspoken um, desire to, to try to raise the consciousness of the world to what's happening to the Jews of Europe. And then that, in turn, after the war, morphed into this very, like, hardcore propaganda for the most violent um, sides of the kind of Jewish terrorist underground um, that was operating in Palestine. Um, and that, the fact of that whole trajectory being just so wild, um, I convinced her, <laughs> she let me write the book. And I, I mean, I tried to balance all those things. I didn't want it just to be a book about his Jewishness, um, because I think that all, one of the fascinating things about Hecht is that all of this stuff is always going on at the same time within him. Um, you know, he's always juggling um, different concerns. He's always juggling different women, <laughs> different <laughs> scripts. Um, he was very, um, he had, he was sort of, you know, an octopus. <laughs> that way he could juggle with many hands. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mm-hmm. thought, uh, I mean, there's a clear, obvious turn in his life toward a Jewish identity that comes about around the time of the Holocaust and after. But before that, it seems to me that, it, I mean, it's it's obviously very much a part of him from the beginning that, you you know, you always have... You know, you you know he came from the streets. He came from New York and other uh, Jewish ghetto communities, and he sort of radiates some of that as well as the Jewish intellectual tradition when he's in Chicago. But more than that, I mean, the thing that I think is really interesting is he brings that to the movies. And by the time he gets yeah. to the movies, it's acted by people like Frederick March and Carol Lombard or Adolf Manjou and Pat O'Brien. So it's not obviously right. Jewish at that point, but I think so much of what we regard as the 30s and 40s sensibility in talking pictures is comes out of Hecht's, you know, sort of street smart Jewish identity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's absolutely, I, I mean, I completely agree with you. My, and I was sort of making the case or trying to make the case in the book that, that I think he's wrong about when his Jewishness kicked in. I don't think yeah. it happened in 1939. I think he, you know, he, he was born on the Lower East Side. He, you know, he basically spent his the first words out of his mouth were in Yiddish. Um, and, you know, and as you say, his wit is so Jewish. I mean, you know, that's a slippery thing. What do we mean when we say Jewish wit? But I think it's not a stretch. I mean, he and Herman Mankiewicz, before they even got to Hollywood, were running, they had this magazine, a short-lived um, kind of satirical tabloid that they were publishing in New York called The Lowdown. And it's, I mean, it's just so Jewish. It's full of these you know, these like poems by a character named Alfred Puppick, yeah. <laughs> things like that. Um, there's sort of a lot of them written in this kind of Fanny Bryce mode about, you know, the the socialist, uh, what am I going to, uh, you know, he talks about the socialist picnic and the waking girl and all this stuff. And then I think you're absolutely right that Hollywood then, when it starts talking, it's all, you know, it's not, it's not stated that a lot of what's coming out of the mouths of those various actors you just mentioned is Jewish and it's not only Jewish, it's deeply American, but you know, let's face it. It's not an, an exaggeration to, to, to talk about Hollywood as somebody like Neil Gabler has, as you know, a, a kind of empire invented by, you know, empire of their own. It's a, it's a, it's a place that was so many of the studio heads were, were Jews and, and so many of the, of the great writers were Jews. Um, 
you know, I think it's not a stretch. I mean, you, you know, Carol Lombard is obviously not a Jew. And um, but when somehow when she's got um, hex words coming out of her mouth, right. there's something Jewish going on there, even though it's never stated as such. And in fact, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a movie of hex, a Hollywood movie in which Jewishness is even mentioned, which is interesting, given what's going on in the rest of his life at the same time. Um, but you feel it, but there's something kind of ineffable there that feels very Jewish. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Well, let's start, uh, let's go back to his beginning. So, um, born in, born in Brooklyn, I think, was that correct? I forgot. Uh, actually, you know what? I, I, I Lower East Side. Lower East side. Um, but born yeah, in, um, yeah. Born yeah, in the Lower right. East Side. Uh, <laughs> I'm forgetting myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. His, uh. His father, you know, worked in the sweatshops and things like that. So, I mean, the the most typical beginnings. Then they moved to Racine, Wisconsin, which does not right. immediately strike one as a uh, as the Lower East <laughs> yeah. Side, but like so exactly. many places, uh, you know, had a certain Jewish community. Um, so he grew up in that world and, you know, and it, with all the, the sort of color and street raffishness and everything that you, that you expect of that. Right. I mean, and I think they're always, you know, they're always, as I've said, multiple things going on in him at the same time. And I think, I mean, on the one hand, he has in him the, the tenements and the street smart stuff, but I think, and his family bounced around a little bit before they got to Racine, but when they did, you know, it's a really middle American place. And there actually was not a huge Jewish community there. There was not even a small, there were, there were just a few Jews in Racine at that point. Um, and he was very much a part of this kind of middle American um, existence. I, you know, I don't think that his Jewishness was, was one, when he was there, I think he was just sort of being an all American boy. He was playing with his friends and making trouble. Um, and and getting this other dose of America that would also inform his script. I mean, I say in the book that I think in some sense, Hecht's real religion was his Americanness, so that as Jewish as he was, there was something profoundly American about him, not that being Jewish is not being American, but I mean middle American in that sense of, of that Wisconsin world. Um, but they were both there, and he's got a great scene that I actually quote from in the book in which and I, you know, it's always hard to know with heck what's a fantasy and what's a reality. But he has this great scene of all of his aunts and uncles, um, kind of converging on his um, on on their scene for for a Fourth of July celebration, and they're all, you know, sitting out, you know, in their in their t-shirts and their kind of uh, bathrobes, drinking beer and eating their corned beef and pickles. And and when the fireworks go out of, you know, start exploding over the lake, they start singing in Yiddish. And so it's this kind of coming together of both of these, this kind of Ur-American moment, a certain kind of American moment. And Racine was a really booming town at that time. Um, and then this kind of immigrant thing and their kind of gratitude for having been, you know, having come to America, but they're singing in Yiddish. So it's still a very Jewish thing. So that's always with him. I think those two different um, dynamics um, playing out. And in Chicago, then, of course, you know, it's, um, I mean, he's not so specific about his Jewishness there, but it's very clear that other people were aware of just how Jewish he was. I mean, I found a poem in his archive, which is at the Newbury Library in Chicago, um, that Carl Sandburg wrote um, an unpublished poem called Sketches for Cartoon of Ben Hecht, in which he pretty much describes him as a Jewish Huck Finn, um, which <laughs> seems like a perfect embodiment yeah. of, of what he was. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, and so then he moved to Chicago as a, you know, he basically spent three days at the University of Wisconsin in summer school, decided that that was not for him and fled for the big city um, and, you know, quickly got a job at a newspaper, not first as a reporter, but as a so-called picture chaser, you know, somebody who would go um, try to wrestle up a photograph from a family of you know, someone had been murdered or raped and he made the, they needed a picture to publish in the paper. So you have to go either connive one out of, you know, somehow convince them to give him a picture or steal it. Um, and anyway, he did that for a while, but eventually ended up being given stories to write. And first his stories were complete fabrications. He kind of concocted all kinds of crazy stuff about, you know, the earthquake that had just taken place uh, in Chicago <laughs> and the pirates on Lake Michigan. Um but he became a real reporter. I mean, he also then wound up covering all kinds of, you know, stories of crime and um, but interviewing all kinds of people from William Jennings Bryan to various Yiddish poets. And um, but he and becoming a kind of star reporter, he really was um, considered a whiz kid um, in that sense. Um, yeah. And that so, as I said, that would be the stuff that he and MacArthur, who had MacArthur was also a, a cub reporter in Chicago during those years, that they would then turn into this kind of mythological world of the front page in which you've got all these kind of wisecracking reporters sitting around the, you know, the criminal courts building press room waiting for, for the hanging to take place right. and cracking jokes and playing cards. Is this the home of Mrs. F.C. Margolis? This is Mr. McHugh with the City News Bureau. Is it true, madam, that you were the victim of a peeping tom? Ask if she's worth peeping at. Oh, now, madam, that ain't the right attitude to take. All we want is the facts. Tell her I can run up for an hour. Tell her to come over here. We'd like to reenact the crime. And they, they insisted that they hadn't made it up, that this was all, like, kind of documentary, which is both true and not true. I mean, it's obviously based on what they'd seen, but it's also true that they had the... Uh, imagination and, and talent to kind of glamorize this figure and, and stylize it and turn it into this sort of iconic figure that is not just, I mean, it's something that we know, you know, they created it for the front page, but it's now everywhere you look. I mean, it's become this figure. There are so many movies that, that can I mean, obvious movies like the front page and his girl Friday, which are just adaptations of the play, but then so many other films pick up that thing. Um, sort of persona. Um, yeah, that sensibility. I mean, it just is 30s movies almost. Absolutely. It just yeah, runs absolutely. through everything. And it's no surprise, you know, the the most obvious example is, you know, that they took the front page and turned it into Gunga Din somehow. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The triangle and the, yeah, yeah exactly. And the woman who's going to like ruin the, ruin the guy's fun at the end somehow. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you know, it, right. it was just, it was a way of looking at the world that you could have put into anything you know exactly. even even the british empire in the 19th century right um, which was a bit of a stretch yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah no i you know as someone who is a bit in the chicago journalistic world i mean i'm just sitting there weeping as i'm reading about you know how much fun it was back then uh, you yeah, know <laughs> yeah, yeah, i mean yeah. it's just it, you know it's this and hecht was just this you know protean fi figure with enough energy to May have three or four full lives going on at once it seems like um yeah. you know he's he's a journalist and he's 
uh, you know, writing for all the, you know, for the, like the little review and things like that. And then later for the smart set for Mencken, another, yeah. another guy who yeah. uh, skipped college to go straight into newspaperdom. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, and then, then there's his, his love life. Uh, he picks up one, you know, first the, the Protestant wife, and then he finds the, Jewish intellectual wife, and then they're both writing right. books about him. I thought that was that was hilarious. Yeah. That you know, at some mm-hmm. point they're waging war by both writing Romana Clef about exactly, and, uh, about he, and ben he writes it, and he writes about it too. And so I was actually having to kind of, you know, I, the, the, trying to tell the story with any kind of authority. You know, I'm shifting back and forth, reading all these different accounts, and it's clear that these things all happen. But you've got not just he said, she said, but you've got. She said, she said, he said, you know, <laughs> uh, sort of Rashomon of, of who's responsible for what. And, um, and you know, he was obviously, yeah, and he attracted or was attracted to these very verbal women. So there's a sort of unbelievable, yeah, the, the, the versions that they're, t- I mean, they're actually quite good. I mean, they're not like for the ages, these books that, that right. were written about this particular affair, but both of these women were very talented and very funny. And so, I mean, on the one hand, I was laughing as I was reading this and, and quoting from it. On the other hand, it's kind of sad. I mean, their lives are one woman's life is being ruined by this other woman, she claims. and Or is it his fault because he's so selfish and he actually he knows that they both know and he's willing to put up with having this arrangement. He'd, he'd be happy to actually have the arrangement continue as it is. He can have his cake and eat it. Right. You know? um, so, but I had a lot to work with. Let's put it that way. There are yeah. an awful lot of accounts of the same um, <laughs> event. <laughs> well, and there's a great line from uh, Marie, the first wife's uh, book that just kind of sums it all up. Uh, she, she says, typewriters worked overtime at the slightest provocation. Yeah. And that's exactly. pretty much Heck's entire life during, <laughs> exactly. during the 20s. No, and he really was a graphomaniac. I mean, for better and for worse. It, I, I mean, on the one hand, it left, it gave me as a biographer incredible material to work with, but I also had to had to pick my spots because he just never, ever stopped just pouring out these voluminous, you know, letters, his letters to the mistress who would become his second wife, Rose Keller, are, you know, pages and pages and pages long. And then you've got, you know, a whole shelf full of his books and something like 140 movies that he had something to do with and all these articles. It just, the num- the words that poured out of him and all the plays, um, you know, and I had the imperative, I, I was, I had to write a relatively short book for this series. <laughs> so, you know, you, you do all the same research to write a short book that you would for a long book, but the point is that even just taking in everything that he set down on paper and then there's what he said out loud and, um, you know, like all kinds of interviews and things, um, it's kind of boggling um, that he, that he was able to do that and, and never really flag. I mean, his energies were remarkable. Um, yeah. Right. And so, and besides knowing everyone in Chicago at that time, you know, as you say, Carl Sandburg and <laughs> Maxwell Bodenheim is a relatively forgotten yeah. figure now, but it's one of those right. names that turns up here and so on. He also went to Weimar, Germany and knew Rosa exactly. Luxemburg and Carl Liebknecht. And yeah, I mean, I mean he didn't actually know them. He okay. kind of, he, his, story intersected with theirs in the sense that as they were being killed, he was running out to cover it. But he did know, and this is no small thing, he was introduced almost immediately to George Gross, George Gross the, right. the satirist and, and the Dadaist, and he became very involved with the whole scene of this Dada scene, which I'm convinced actually, I mean, I would never call Ben Hecht a Dadaist himself, but it's clear that a lot of the energy and the humor and the kind of crazy happenings that the Dadaists were, were involved with in Germany were things that he brought back with him to America. And he and Bodenheim actually 
you know, they had a, they too had a, a magazine like what Heck would have later with Mankiewicz, um, the Chicago Literary Times, in which they're doing all kinds of crazy. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a goofy satirical um, tabloid, but they wanted to launch the first um, issue with a. This didn't happen, which is too bad because it would have been great with a parade that had <laughs> floats of Chicago writers at work <laughs> going down the streets of Chicago. But that sounds to me like a kind of American take on a Dada, you know, happening in which all these typewriters are going and somebody's twelve people are reciting their poems at the same time. Um, there's that kind of spirit of kind of mayhem. Um, but he also says, and it's actually important that he went to Germany. I mean, he was sent by the Chicago Daily News as foreign correspondent. And this too is something that comes up in various Hollywood movies. I mean, he is not credited with the script for foreign correspondent, the Hitchcock film, but he did write that amazing last scene in which, you know, Bill McRae speaks to America um, you know, as the bombs are falling on London. Um, but I think that even the parts of that movie that he didn't write, there's something about that American beat reporter in this very foreign, confusing um, situation that seems to have also been borrowed um, from Hecht. Um, and that's another figure who turns up also in Comrade X, which is a movie that I like a lot that people don't necessarily watch anymore, um, in which Clark Gable plays that same kind of figure. This sort of again, the cynical, funny reporter, but who's suddenly thrust into a very real and kind of dangerous foreign political situation and uses his wit to sort of, um, you know, figure out what's actually going on. And so Hecht, while he was goofing around with George Gross and these other Dadaists, was also having to cover um, for the paper back in Chicago what was unfolding in Germany at a time of incredible violence and, and chaos. And he claim to have known, you know, as little as it was possible for an American journalist to know about the political situation, but he figured it out quickly. And so he was able to sort of do the serious work of reporting as he was goofing around. I mean, he, there are some amazing letters in his archive from his editors back in Chicago who are telling him to stop goofing around in his articles. <laughs> he actually needs to be taking it a little more seriously, but he did. And I, I spent a lot of time actually reading through the dispatches that he was sending both the articles as they'd be published, but also his actual wire reports that he was filing, and it's, he was taking it seriously. So he had those two sides of him as well. I think that time in 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 Germany also really planted in him. I mean, he says that it gave him a sort of permanent cynicism toward history, and that's something that will come back later as he becomes much more actively involved in all the Jewish stuff. Is sort of how to handle his own. Um, I mean, on the one hand, he's cynical. On the other hand, he does eventually throw himself into this cause. So it's not complete cynicism, but there's a real darkness that hovers around his knowledge of what the world is possible, um, is capable of doing, um, which is not just fun and games. Um, so, but I think his time in Germany was really his first contact with that other kind of sense of, of, of what history can do and be, or what politics can be and do. Besides Screwball, I mean, I think you have to consider him as, as, you know, maybe the key figure in the invention of it for all the reasons that you, that you say, including the fact that it had a certain whiff of things like Dada and surrealism, you know, the absurdist uh, angle, uh, even as it would have made fun of it. If you, you know, if you put a character in who was an actual Dadaist, it would have been played by Misha Auer for comedy. But... Uh, <laughs> But you know, there, nevertheless, I mean, there's there's a bit of a whiff of that in the air. You know, it's a little bit of the seasoning of the genre. But the other genre that it seems that he's, 
you know, he's enormously important to that would be a big deal in the 30s is the gangster genre. Sure, uh, and that he, yeah. you know, he wrote Underworld, which really kind of created the the romantic notion of of the gangster as both a menace and a kind of, you know, knight in armor in mm-hmm. the day. Uh, that would be done in different ways. Eventually, the production code would kind of squash aspects of it, but uh, but you know, really essential to the crime film in in uh, Hollywood and in, in, in sound. Yeah, All right. And then of course into Scarface just a few years later. And I think, I mean, I do think these are things. Uh, you know, I I think of Hecht as having remained a Chicago writer to a certain extent, even after he left Chicago, and that's partly to do with his having taken with him, you know, first of all, the newsroom and, and turning it into the front page, as I was saying, but also the gangster stuff. He claims, and you know, there are different versions that he tells at different points about how Underworld came to be, but he claims that he got the idea soon after Mankiewicz um, kind of summoned him out to to the West Coast to, to work for Paramount, um, that he was sitting in the lobby of the hotel and bumped into a former stool pigeon, you know, from the state's attorney's office, who somebody he'd known when he was a beat reporter in Chicago, and that it gave him an idea for a movie, and that would become Underworld. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, but I do think it's safe to say that he was the one who said, like, let's do it this way and not, which is to say, I mean, there were a couple, I, there were other gangster movies around at the time, but that movie really is considered one of the very first and certainly one of the very best early gangster films. And it's partly because Hecht, having covered that beat in Chicago, he knew that gangsters were not just bad guys, that there was this whole kind of range of people who gangsters were. And, and it's really like, it's an entire universe and so I think the fact that you have these different kinds of gangsters in that film, you know, one is the sort of intellectual um, kind of noble one. And the other is this kind of thuggish, but guy with a big laugh who's, you know, in control. Um, and then the, and then the, the mall um, feathers McCoy, who's, yeah, I mean, the point is that he was able to, to kind of give, I can't exactly say voice because it's a silent film, but right. to give, um, <laughs> to give to flesh out the fact that this is not a, a just a black and white situation of you know gangsters bad <laughs> these are these are people with complicated inner lives and whatnot i mean he was to be fair to him disgusted by what von sternberg did with the film and precisely because of some of the romanticism he claimed again we have to take it with a grain of salt um he said that Sternberg, when Sternberg had introduced all kinds of sentimental touches and he wanted his name removed from the credits. Um, you know, they didn't listen to him at Paramount. They kept his name on the credits. But um, when they themselves, the studio bosses, saw the film before it was released, they were actually kind of horrified um, at what they saw as just the sordidness and, and the violence. And they actually came close to not even showing it. I mean, it opened in one movie theater in Times Square in 1927 without any fanfare at all or any advertising. And somehow word got out and there was kind of like a mob scene that, I mean, that ensued, not a mobster scene, but a, right. <laughs> a mob of like a flash mob or whatever it was called at the time of people stampeding the theater desperate to see the film. And they had to keep the movie theater open all night. And it turned into this great big, you know, this, this sensation and it got rave reviews and Hecht would eventually win the first um, best story Oscar um, 
which he sent back and said he was he had no interest in because he's a man of letters and Hollywood is an outhouse on the Parnassus and so on. <laughs> but, you know, he eventually, they sent it back to him. He agreed to keep it. He used it as a doorstop and so on. This town is up for the grab. Get me? You know, Costello was the last of the old-fashioned gang leaders. There's a new crew coming out. And every guy that's got money enough to buy a gun is going to try to step into his place. You see? They'll be shooting each other like rabbits for the control of the booze business. But yes, I think he totally deserves credit for having invented that. And then Scarface, which is a very different kind of gangster movie from Underworld because it's Hawks. It's not von Sternberg, so it's got a much harder um, surface, but it's also got incredible wit. I mean, some of the things that go on in that movie at the sort of intersection of different genres strike me as just incredible. The way that there's that great scene where you know, basically the the restaurant where they're sitting is being shot up and it's incredibly violent. But at the same time, there's this kind of slapstick thing going on in the background with the secretary trying to take a, the male secretary trying to take a message on the phone. Um, and so Hawks and, and Hecht, and I do think that Heck deserves an awful lot of credit for things that Howard Hawks tends to get credit for. Right. Like, who, who invented screwball? I mean, everybody remembers Howard Hawks. People don't necessarily remember Ben Heck, but so many of Hawks' great films were written by Heck that I think it's not a coincidence. Um, but in that case, they're able to do both at the same time, the screwball thing and the gangster thing. Um, and, you know, it's it's amazing. Even now, Scarface feels pretty brutal. I mean, the, the scenes where, where the guns are, are firing, it's 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 a harsh film. And yeah, you're right. It's sort of pre-code or it's not exactly pre-code because they actually were fighting a lot with the Hayes office about that film. And, and Howard Hughes, who is the producer of the film, and Hawks were basically eager to upset um, the moral powers that were. And it, they delayed, I mean, it was delayed by it. You know, a year because of their their struggles with the with the um, with Hay with the Hay's office, but um, but it's there and it's there to see. And you know, they had to change the ending and they had to tack on shame of a nation as a um, as a kind of um, you know subtitle. So it would be clear that that this is something that, of course, we look down on these kinds of characters, these gangsters, which is nonsense of course if you watch the movie you see where the energy is and it's coming sure. straight from from the gangsters but in the name of a certain kind of propriety they have to claim that we're showing this movie you know to warn the youth about <laughs> the right. dangers of gangsterism or whatever it is um sort, sort of yeah. like the guidebooks that would tell you you know the terrible things that were happening in chicago for instance at uh 2321 South Woodlawn, if you ask for Miss Josie, you will discover, you know. Right. <laughs> a very, very fallen woman who you should never have anything to do with. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, I mean, so right there, we already have Heck, basically. I mean, this is one of the things about people say, well, which, how many movies did he write? What did he get credit for? Aside from counting particular movies, I would just think these genres that we've talked about. I mean, if you just take screwball, gangster, and newspaper movies, like that's pretty good. I mean, <laughs> that's half the 30s, for, right there. You know, yeah. And it's not only heck to be fair to his peers, some of whom were remarkably gifted and who were writing things that are, you know, around it. And I think it's also important when talking about Heck to recognize that he was often working in collaboration with other writers, too. It wasn't just him. I mean, MacArthur is obviously a really important force, but so are people like Charles Laterer um, and Gene Fowler and and other less well-known people like John Lee Mahan and people like that who were part of what actually would become known as his script factory. I mean, he really 
because his name was so bankable at a certain point, he realized he could just set up shop like cranking out these scripts, which he obviously was very involved with. But it's clear that there were other people on the payroll who were also helping to write Ben Hecht's scripts. Yeah, uh, right. Which is perfectly logical. If you're going to turn it into a factory, then by God, I'll be a factory and, and you right. know char- charge you work and charge you accordingly. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, and that's part of the cynicism, too, that goes with his is ostensible contempt for Hollywood is the fact that like, all right, there's all this money to be had. So they want a Ben Hecht script. We'll give them a Ben Hecht script. You know, never mind if, if, if Mahan actually is responsible for big parts of it. I mean, I do think he deserves, I, I mean, according to what somebody like Mahan himself said, I mean, I'm just using him as an example, you know, in fact, Hecht was often saying, Oh, come on, let's let me do it. I can do that faster. And it would, would in fact um, finish a script. But, but the point is that I think there was a lot, he was much less, Whereas when he was writing novels, he had this very lofty sense of his artistic vocation, and this was all the lone artist, you know, at his desk. When he was working on a movie, he was perfectly willing to either have other people work on what he was working on or work on somebody else's movie without credit. I mean, Gone with the Wind, you know, Ben Hecht's name is not on that movie, but we know that he is very largely responsible for having saved what must have been a very problematic script (laughs) at one point. Um, And that's just one example. You know, I mentioned foreign correspondence, so it's just the last scene that he wrote. We know in that case exactly what he's responsible for, but it's an amazing scene that kind of makes the movie or brings it all together. Um, there are other places where we have no idea what he did. We just know that he worked. I mean, we can't necessarily, sometimes you can kind of go back and trace through different drafts, but often it's not so, um, it hasn't been preserved. Um, right. So, you know, and that's one of the mysteries. You know? yeah. Reading the book, I kind of developed a theory, uh, which I'd be curious to hear your reaction to, which is, you know, around somewhere in the thirties as well, he writes a book called a Jew in love. I think it's in the thirties and yeah. yeah, And that's, you know, that's kind of his, his major literary effort at that, in that period of his life. Um, but you know, if he's writing a book about, he's always writing about himself, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of, they seem to turn kind of grandiose, a little, you know, Saroyan-esque, you know, this is Ben Hecht full of big life and loves and I, you know, I must own the world, kind of, you know, that type of writing. And if he wrote in Hollywood, he had to make it dialogue between two characters. You know, he had to Mm -hmm. dramatize it in, in the interaction. And it always is better. It seems to be, or at least it seems to have lasted, you know, if he's right. writing to put it in the mouths of multiple characters rather than just, you hmm. know, 500 pages of Ben Hecht. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms. I mean, you may be right, although he does have a lot of other characters populating his novels. It's not, even though often the main character is somehow, a, you know, based on some version of himself. But I would say that what seems often to be the case with his better work is that it's, Either it's collaborative in the way that I just said, or else it's just simply that he's not taking himself so seriously. He, 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 what would seem to be his contempt for various forms, like, like his screenplays, but also earlier on when he's still in Chicago, he wrote a, um, an amazing column for the Daily News called A Thousand and One Afternoons in Chicago, in which, I mean, he proposed this, he needed money, um, and he kind of missed the newspaper business. He'd gone away for a little while to work in publicity. And he ended up tossing these things off one a day, and they were published on the back pages of the newspaper, like alongside the comic strips. Um, 
And because he wasn't taking himself so seriously, they are incredibly wonderful and warm and generous. They're these kind of portraits of just all kinds of ordinary Chicagoans. You know, the guy who fixes watches on Wall Street and and the black vaudeville performer and the man, the woman manicurist who explains how she deals with lecherous clients. And, um, and they're kind of very ethnically diverse as well. And, and at some level, Hecht doing that was capable of, and maybe it does connect to what you're saying about your testing in terms of dialogue, but I guess it's more sort of um, like not an actual dialogue, but him in conversation with these other figures and not just fixated on his own persona. I mean, maybe that's what you're getting at and what I think is, is true. Um, and so that those are wonderful and his scripts are wonderful. Um, and it was also that he was kind of playing always in those instances. He was able to enjoy himself. And it was really when he sat down and said, I must write, I must be yeah. you know, the novelist that you run into more trouble and, you know, um, and it is partly his egoism or his narcissism at work. That's, that's bogging him down there. Um, but you know, he also wrote when he was writing those stories for the little review and poems and other things, he was also, as you said, writing for Mencken at the smart set. And it's really the case that, I mean, I wouldn't say that the stories he wrote for Mencken are great and for the ages, but they are actually much better than what he was writing for Margaret Anderson. And <laughs> what he was writing for Anderson were these kind of lofty stories about, you know, again, a character not at all unlike himself um, on the one hand. And then what he was writing for Mencken was often to formula. Mencken would give him plots and say, write me a story about this. Sometimes he was writing under a pseudonym. And because he wasn't taking himself so seriously, they tend to actually be much livelier. Um, so it's one of the ironies, um, you know, the thing, again, that he thought he was best at. And I mean, I think also you could probably extend this out to the movies that he and MacArthur actually directed together. And there's a series of films that they made in the 30s in Astoria. They kind of commandeered the Paramount Studios in Astoria and Queens and and directed and produced the movies that they themselves had written, which was really completely radical at the time this is not done you know this is a time when the studio controls everything and for whatever reason they agreed the studio agreed to let them have the run of the place um and on the one hand they were having a great big party all the time allegedly while this was going on but the fact is that when they were taking themselves more seriously as directors it wasn't nearly as good as when they were playing yeah um yeah there's a kind of level of pretension that sneaks in that you don't ever find in his in his hollywood films when other people are directing (laughs) yeah yeah Um, well uh, what did you think of mrs rollinson's book it reeks of morality you're not rejecting it certainly to the lions with it i thought it had a lot of sales value undoubtedly but i refuse to make money improving people's morals it's a vulgar way to swindle the public selling the things they least need Virtue and dullness. The first one, Crime Without Passion, you know, that begins yeah. with this Slavko Vorkopich montage, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's just like, okay, we're we're playing Soviets in this one, <laughs> I guess. So, which I guess is kind of inspired in the sense that it's something. It's so far from what would happen, you know, in a Hollywood studio of the time. Basically, the story that's told, and I think it's true, is that they asked David Selznick, who they were friends with, you know, could you send us a cutter? an editor. And so Selznick sends them Vorkovich, who I don't know if Selznick himself didn't understand who he was, but I mean, he's this kind of master of, of serious artsy montage and, or not artsy, but artful montage. And when Hector and MacArthur figured it out, they said, okay, go for it. So like, do your thing. We're not yeah. going to make you just 
act like a hack. We want you to, to and it's, it is ludicrous, but it's kind of entertaining in its way. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. It lets you know you're not just watching the same old thing. That's for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let's yeah. talk about, uh, I mean, the 40s come, Nazis and the Holocaust are, you know, at least being rumored about at that point, and Hecht becomes an important figure in trying to spread the word of that at an early age, uh, puts on a lot of, you know, things that aren't well remembered now because they happen one way or another, you know, on stages or Madison Square Garden or wherever, um, but trying to alert people to what was going on in Europe. Uh, right. And that's that's really the beginning of what becomes the major uh, uh, focus of the later part of his life, which is you know, his sort of rediscovery of his Jewish identity. I, I wrote down a quote here. It said, in this, he's talking about New York, in this center of un-Judaization, I began to turn into a Jew. Yeah. I mean, that's, so when he came to New York in 1924, he claims that he suddenly noticed that there were so many Jews around that he hadn't ever really been aware of his Jewishness before growing up in Racine and being in Chicago, where suddenly he is conscious of the fact that New York is not only there are a lot of Jews in New York, but that the people who are writing the plays and the music and running the magazines and the department stores, that they're all Jews, too. And it's not just people like his aunts and uncles and parents who work in the garment district, that there are these kind of um, Jews who care about culture in a different way. And he becomes suddenly conscious. Um, and I mean, what happens is complicated. I mean, a lot of things are going on, as always, with him at once. Um, he... In the late 30s, um, he has, well, actually in the early 30s, mid 30s, he has an affair with um, a very waspy young woman, um, and it almost wrecks his marriage. And I do think, I mean, you don't want to be too glib. We don't know. People have all kinds of reasons for doing what they do. But I do think that one of the reasons that he would turn to his Jewishness um, in the late thirties is because he was back with his wife and trying to prove to her something, his Jewish wife. Um, and she was very passionate about these causes. And he says at one point that it was because of her that he became so involved. Um, I mean, so there's that on the one hand, I think that there was also a sense that he felt somehow that he had never really done something, um, serious with himself that, that all this goofing around and, and the movie's, too. I mean, even though he'd had all these very successful careers, that there was some some emptiness in him that he needed to um, to respond to by means of something, some cause larger than himself and his own art or entertainment. So, but I ask in the book, but why was it the Jews? Why didn't he become a communist or turn, you know, go deal with the Spanish Civil War or, or other things that other people of his same, you know, his peers were doing? And it's kind of mysterious. I mean, so there's the, the, you know, on the one hand, there's the fact of his wife. There's also the fact that obviously things in Europe were becoming much, much worse for the Jews. And he knew this. And he also says that he did it in a way to defend his his dead uh, aunts and uncles. The people, you know, he felt this incredible sentimental attachment to his um, to his family, and that that sort of he felt that they were under attack when Jews elsewhere were under attack. Um, and so he writes in the late 30s a kind of remarkable short story that it's not really like anything he'd ever written before, in which he kind of predicts what's going to happen. And it's 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 prophetic in the sense that obviously people knew that, that things were bad for the Jews of Europe, but they didn't quite know that things were going to pan out as they did. And so he describes something that he calls the great international pogrom, in which half a million Jews are, are run out of their homes and then slaughtered. Um, 
he's sort of predicting the Holocaust. And he's also at the same time, he begins in 1941 to write a column for PM magazine in New York. His wife, Rose, arranges for this to happen in which um, he kind of extends what he'd been doing in Chicago. He'd had a thousand and one afternoons in Chicago. So now he has a thousand and one afternoons in New York. And he's often doing the same kinds of portraits of different people around town, but he's also writing much more explicitly about Jews and, and what's going on in Europe. And one of these articles or several of these articles catch the eye of this man named Peter Bergson. Um, it's actually not his real name. It's a kind of nom de guerre. His real name is Hillel Cook, who is one of these Palestinian activists who I mentioned earlier, um, a Lithuanian born Jew who had been sent by the Irgun, the right wing nationalistic underground of Palestine to recruit, to basically to raise money for a Jewish army. And they basically, he and a couple of his comrades recruited Hecht and said, we want you to be our American spokesman. And Hecht just laughed at them at first because he's like me, you know, you got to be kidding. I'm totally apolitical. I don't care about Palestine. You've come to the wrong place. But they were clever. Bergson was, he understood that he, he had, in fact, found the man. <laughs> like, he understood that there was something about Heck that wanted to be involved in a cause. Um, so they literally recruited him, and Heck got down to work pretty quickly once he agreed to help them, you know, both giving them his own money, um, but introducing them to other people, his Hollywood friends, and writing these ads. And it's the ads that would be the most notorious thing that he did, these full-page ads that the, this group was taking out in places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Post, um, you know, especially when um, when they're, when the cause sort of shifted to, away from the army idea and more toward the idea of saving the Jews of, of Europe. Um, very um, kind of audacious, um, not kind of, very audacious and often witty in a very black way. These ads were like, in one instance, there was an offer allegedly on the table to release the remaining Jews of Romania um, in exchange for a certain amount of money that would need to be given to the Romanian government. And so, heck, and he signs it with his own name. I mean, he takes out an ad. It's paid for by this committee. Um saying for sale to humanity, you know, guarantee human beings $50 a piece which is on the one hand, you know, kind of devastating and harsh. On the other hand, it's kind of funny. I mean, who writes guaranteed human beings? <laughs> um, <laughs> ben Hex. Um, so, and he got into a lot of trouble too. There were a lot of people who were very upset. A lot of Jews were very upset at the way he was expressing himself because this was not, you know, there was a great fear of anti-Semitism at the time. There was a sense that calling so much attention to the fact that one's Jewishness could get could cause pogroms. Even it might this kind of talk might cause pogroms, and um, it might bring down all kinds of terrible things on on America's Jews. Um, there was a sense among certain people, like David Selznick, for instance, um, that he would prefer to be known as an American and not a Jew. And Hecht had no trouble being both. But for Selznick, there was a sense that one would have to make a choice. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so Heck really threw himself into this. And as he's doing his, I mean, it's not as if he ever stopped doing everything else he was doing. He continued to crank out scripts. I mean, the number of scripts he wrote right around the same period, not just the number, but the quality is just staggering. I mean, it's like everything from, um, you know, um, basically Gunga Din, Stagecoach, Wuthering Heights, 
Um, Notorious. The Wind is Girl Friday. Notor- I mean, Notorious is a little bit later, but even just 1939, yeah. 1940. Okay. Um, foreign Correspondent, Angels Over Broadway, Comrade X. I mean, it, Lydia is on and on. Um, and he was able to do that even as he was, he was working with these groups. Actually, Notorious, though, if you want to talk about Notorious, you know, it's obviously one of the great movies of all time, and I think it's one of his very best. Um, and it comes right at the end of the war, actually. Uh, and that's one where we know that he really is responsible for the script. I mean, he and Hitchcock worked really closely together on it. Um, and there, I think you do see, there is a sense of not just entertainment, but of something much darker at work. Um, you know, obviously it's a very entertaining movie, but you have this very sinister sense of these Nazis running around Rio. Um, and they're not just Nazis, they're people who work for the IG Farben company, which produced Zyklon B, which, you know, was used to gas to death millions of Jews, that's not a coincidence. Um, and I think the fact that one of the primary um, kind of, uh, I mean, I, they called it a MacGuffin. I don't know if it actually counts as a MacGuffin, but right. <laughs> the fact that, that, <laughs> that uranium ore figures so centrally, in, that, centrally in, in a film that was made right around the time that the United States was um, first planning and then eventually dropping bombs on, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki is also not a coincidence. Um, and there's that famous, um, I don't know if it's famous, but there's a story that is told and it's not clear if it actually happened of Hitchcock and Hecht going to pay a visit on this Nobel Prize winning physicist at Caltech. And a writer, as they're writing the script, in, I guess like the summer of 1945 or right around then, and the guy getting very alarmed by questions that they're asking about uranium ore, because this is like basically top secret material right. <laughs> that they're asking about. Um, they're going to get him in trouble. It's just maybe not stuff that one expects to find in a Hollywood script. Um, that so, that might be a little too good to check, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. stories tend to yeah. be. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, his support for Irgun, which is Menachem Begin's right-wing end of the Israeli political spectrum, and at that point is a terrorist, terrorist organization against mm-hmm. the British, he managed to be the only person who got blacklisted for not being a communist. Right, uh, exactly. In the, yeah. you know, he, he became such a persona non grata in Britain that that made it hard for him to get hired, although he continued working like crazy because he apparently yeah. didn't care that much if he got credit or not. But, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, and that was really pretty much uh, the result of one particular ad in that same style that I was just describing that he wrote in which he um, basically writes a letter in praise of the terrorists of Palestine. And he says, you know, every time you blow up a British uh, train or, you know, shoot a, Jew- uh, a British soldier, basically um, the Jews of America make a little holiday in their hearts. And I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that that did it. That was enough. To just to get him literally boycotted by all the theater owners in Britain, they refused to have Ben Hecht's name on a movie that they screened in their in their theaters. And as a result, Hollywood said, "Forget it. We cannot risk an entire the British market on your script." And so they blacklisted him. Um, and he did continue to work. You're right. I mean, he worked under pseudonyms. Um, he worked anonymously. He worked for much less money than he'd been earning before. Um, and it was right at the time of the Hollywood blacklist. I mean, it's remarkable. He and Dalton Trumbo actually both worked together. I mean, Trumbo is the one who has been given credit in retrospect, but Roman Holiday is a movie that we know that Heck worked on extensively. He rewrote Trumbo's script, but the two of them were basically blacklisted at the same time for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, which is kind of tragic in its way. I mean, 
to be fair, Hex brought this on himself, and right. he was very, he was always eager to get in trouble. He was not avoiding conflict. He wanted it, and he should have known that this was that ad. I mean, whatever your politics are, um, it was kind of. I mean, I don't even know if stupid is the term, but it was so flamboyant that he he must have known that it was going to come yeah. get him. And it upset many of his friends, too. I mean, Mankiewicz has this great line that I quote in the book where, I mean, he and Mankiewicz actually had real kind of knockdown, drag-out fights about Hecht's politics surrounding Palestine. Um, they were still very close, but they'd have these incredible arguments. But so Mankiewicz at a certain point is asked, you know, why is Heck doing this? Why is he saying these things? How can he talk that way? And Mankiewicz says, you know, basically, well, six years ago, Ben figured out he was a Jew and now he behaves like a six-year-old Jew. (laughs) (laughs) In a nutshell. Um, Yeah. Yeah. The the zeal of the convert for someone who wasn't a convert. Right. Yeah. Uh, Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's an oddball period then the, the last years of his life, uh, you know, writing, you know, ghost writing an autobiography from Marilyn Monroe that didn't come out after long after both of their deaths. Um, but it does have his, you know, what you call his best book, A Child of the Century, which again, kind of like Mencken, you know, Mencken wrote. Uh, happy days and newspaper days and all those right. about his early days, you know, that there's a kind of real charm in an intellectual's version of that sort of Americana memoir that's f- full of humor. And, you know, all through your book, I'd been thinking, wow, this this is like where Saul Bellow, you know, this, it's yeah. like he's proto Saul Bellow. And finally, you know, on yeah, you page 300 yeah. and something, Saul Bellow <laughs> turns up, uh, you know, yeah. praising Ben yeah. Hecht as having inspired him so much. And I think that's yeah. their Chicago literature right there is, is the teeming life of a, a gritty urban city, you know, strongly Jewish flavored. Um, and so, that's that's kind of the literary peak that's not a screenplay or a play for Ben right. Hecht, it seems to me. Absolutely. And I do think that actually Hecht the memoirist is the prose writing Hecht that should get more credit. Um, I mean, that's what I think he should be remembered for. I mean, Child of the Century is, I think, a remarkable book, but he's also got others. He's got a book called Charlie, which is a memoir of, of Charlie MacArthur. Um, which is also just a wonderful book. And one of my favorites, which is almost never mentioned, um, I just mentioned it in passing. It's, again, I, it was hard to cram it all in, but a book that was published posthumously is something he wrote called Letters from Bohemia, which isn't, it's actually maybe back to your question about, or your suggestion of the kind of the dialogue that brought out the best in him. It's actually a series of portraits of some of his great dead friends, including Mencken and, um, and Gross and um, Gene Fowler and others. And he basically includes letters by each of them that they wrote to him and a kind of essay portrait um, that he writes about each of them. And so when he's writing in that memoiristic vein, it's really moving and it's really him at his best. And, you know, obviously you have to take it with a grain of of salt when it comes to the actual facts that he's recording sometimes (laughs) because he often will give different versions of the same events and, and things are often... Uh, yeah, they're always evolving or mutating. But I think as writing, qua writing, it's wonderful. Um, and I think, you know, you're absolutely right to, to, to point to that Bellow thing. I mean, one of the, one thing that occurred to me, and I, I mean, I've said it a lot, I should have just said in passing in the book, is that another thing that I think Hecht helped to create was, I mean, he's not a great novelist and doesn't deserve to be remembered for his novels, but I think he cleared the space for these other novelists, people like Bellow, but also Ross. I mean, I think Philip Roth's 
um, Portnoy's complaint is anticipated by that book, A Jew in Love, that we were talking about earlier, which is also a pretty raunchy book, and it's full of portraits of Jews that make Jews uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, it's not the side of, of, of Jewishness that, that a lot of sort of more, um, let's say, establishment Jews would like to, to see or read about. Um, and he, too, heck, was denounced from the pulpits of various synagogues by rabbis, you know, much like, you know, the people, various rabbis and others would denounce Philip Roth for what he wrote in Portnoy's complaint. So, um, you know, so the fact that they, and I don't know if Roth read um, Hecht, but we do know from this, as you say, this, this quote, I mean, Bellow basically reviewed Child of the Century in the New York Times, and he says, you know, this is, we used to, my friends and I used to run around Chicago secondhand bookstores looking for Ben Hecht books, and he showed us that it was possible to write about, you know, immigrants and about these streets we saw around us, um, that he really did pave the way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's another thing. I mean, in a way, you know, if you look over this whole, this question, I've been sort of haunted by the question of why has Heck been forgotten? Now, maybe talking to you, you know, in the context of a, a movie podcast, he hasn't been forgotten. But at large, Heck has been, I mean, people, when I told people what I was, you know, people would always ask me, what are you writing? And I'd say a book about Ben Hecht. And then I would get this really strange look, like people not really wanting to admit that they weren't sure who I was talking about. <laughs> or, I mean, sometimes people would know, but if they knew that they would tend to know one thing, oh, wasn't he, he wrote the front page or he had something to do with Chicago, but they wouldn't necessarily know the full range of his accomplishment. But if you step back and think about it, I mean, not only is he responsible for creating so much of Hollywood as we know it, but he's also responsible for creating much of the American theater as we know it, you know, again, that Tennessee Williams thing. And, you know, I'm just saying now about these novels that he cleared the way for these other novelists. And, you know, arguably those columns he was writing in Chicago anticipate the work of columnists who came later, who are much more famous um, than he was, you know, people like Jimmy Breslin. Um, and Royko so, here, clearly. And Royko, yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how conscious all these pe later people were of Ben Hecht's presence, but I think he kind of made it possible for the next generation and then the next um, to do those things. And you could even argue that some of the propaganda that he was responsible for surrounding Palestine, Israel, is stuff that has been. I mean, the whole conversation has evolved, maybe, or devolved, yeah. maybe, <laughs> since then. Um, but a lot of those same arguments that he was making and stances he was taking are still being worked out today. Um, you know, and, and in fact, one of the ironies of his politics about the Middle East is that um, while the organization, the Irgun, Benassim Begin's underground, that he was supporting was pretty marginal at the time. I mean, they were really outside of the mainstream of what most of Palestine's Jews and probably most Jews of America would have supported in terms of that place. That is, that is now what is Israeli politics. I mean, there is the, the party, the kind of more left-wing um, labor party um, that once existed is almost defunct. In fact, there's about to be an election in Israel and it's likely that the labor party won't even have enough seats to sit in the Knesset in the parliament. So there's an irony in that too, in terms of what it is that Hecht foresaw. And I mean, I don't think that's a good thing, but it's a fact. I mean, that's my own politics speaking. And I tried to leave my own politics sort of out of the book in a way, um, but he'd probably be pleased. I mean, it's obviously evolved. And I don't think that, that, that Benjamin Netanyahu is a direct descendant of, of Menachem Begin. I mean, there's a lot of very serious differences, but ideologically, they basically come from the same place. And in fact, Netanyahu's father was close to a lot of those people. Um, uh, you know, was very much a part of that that movement. Um, so, 
So that's another kind of interesting irony about Ben Hecht. <laughs> Thanks to my guests, Nora Fiore and Adina Hoffman. I'll have links for Adina Hoffman's Ben Hecht Fighting Words Moving Pictures in the show post at nitrateville.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. And leave us a rating or a review at iTunes. I'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>